morning, everyone. Hey, it is great to be together. Let's be turning our attention to Leviticus chapter 25. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Maybe Chris or someone can bring one over, or Aaron, if you could grab a couple Bibles. But we want to jump right in tonight. We have 55 verses to cover, and God willing, we'll be able to do that in two or three hours and be out of here before midnight. So we're going to do our best. We're going to go for it. I, I want to begin by summarizing the whole chapter quickly to you, because I think it helps with comprehension. And then, of course, we'll go back, we'll read it, and we'll pick out the more important components. But a couple quick things, you know, a little refresher that uh, last couple weeks we, we, we've read that God had just finished describing the festivals that Israel was supposed to partake in on an annual basis. And basically, all the festivals were based around the Sabbath, and it's laid out very, very plainly and clearly in the scripture that on the seventh day, no ordinary work is to be done. It's just super, super clear. It's a time to focus on God. It's a time to be thankful to God. And so during this weekly ritual, it is there to remind us, to remind the people back then that it is God who made the world, that it is God who is still in control since the beginning of time, that he rested on the seventh day and basically sat back and just admired his creation. But the lesson to be learned is that you can trust God. And they, too, can rest from their work and understand that not everything in life is a big, big deal. Sometimes whatever it is we're struggling with today or we're working on today, we put on top of the list and it's such a big deal. But they could now trust God and understand that God would, would provide for them during this time of rest. Now, if you've been with us since I started teaching in Genesis, it's probably going on two years, or if you're someone who reads your Bible a lot, you understand that the number seven is everywhere in the Scripture. And, and number seven is the number of completion. Um, there are the, the seven yearly festivals. There, most of those happen in the seventh month. There's seven days in a week, seven days in creation. The seventh year was a Sabbath year. Seven times seven, the 49th year, going into the 50th year, is the mega Sabbath year. And there's just so many things with this number seventh. You, you start to realize there is something significant to the number seven. In the New Testament and on your screen, there's so many different things Dealing with the number seven for time's sake, I could never go over them all. But in the New Testament, Jesus on the cross in agony uttered seven statements. In the Sermon on the Mount, he gave us the Lord's Prayer. And I believe there's seven components to the Lord's Prayer. And by the way, we're going to be doing a series on the Lord's Prayer as soon as we finish Leviticus. I'll probably do a four-week uh, study on the Lord's Prayer. So in the next week or two, Cody's going to finish us up here. And then I'll be preparing for that. I'm excited about the Lord's Prayer. Seven components there in Revelation. Seven churches, seven angels, seven lampstands, seven stars. But back in Leviticus, where we're starting tonight, every seventh year is a sabbatical year. And during this time, all the farmland must rest. So even the land has to take a break. Nothing can be planted. Nothing can be harvested. And then lastly, seven times seven years is the year of Jubilee. We're going to be looking at that tonight. So after 49 years, at the beginning of the 50th year is this mega Sabbath. Mega, not MAGA. Not MAGA Sabbath. Now, I don't know if Trump wins. It may be a MAGA Sabbath for me. But mega Sabbath. But all the debts are canceled during this time. The land goes back to the original owners. All the slaves are freed. And this isn't it. Talk about social justice. 
This is an unprecedented act of social justice, and it was put in place by God so that no one could become disproportionately poor or no one could become disproportionately wealthy over the multiple generations. Twice a century, God would hit the reset button and everything would go back to its original ownership. Now, the thing is, we have no evidence at all that the Israelites ever obeyed this mega Sabbath, which makes it even more beautiful when you think about, more wonderful when we realize that Jesus, when he claimed to be the bringer of the final year of Jubilee, Jesus is our Jubilee. And in Jesus, all of our debts are eternally canceled out. Jesus, when he read from the scroll of Isaiah, he said, it is the year of the Lord's favor. He didn't just restore property. For us, he's given us a land that we never had in the first place, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. He truly has freed us from our slavery to sin, our slavery to death. Jesus is truly the mega Sabbath, and all this happened through his death, burial, and resurrection. So there you go. You all can leave. That is the summary of chapter 25. But of course, we need to break it down a little bit. Chapter 23 was about the Sabbath day, 24-hour period. We're going to talk about the Sabbath year today. Verse 1, a year of rest. Then the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give, give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you, you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field, nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself and your male and female slaves and your hired men and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you, even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have, shall have all its crops to eat. So here's what's going on here. If you're a farmer, you're, you're used to sowing and reaping, and that's totally cool for six years you're to carry on and do exactly what you've always done, what your family's done, you're good. But now on the seventh year, you don't do anything. It's like, whoa, wait, what? You don't work at all. And in many ways, I look at that and I go, man, I would love that. I would love to have a year off from work, but it has its ups and downs. The up is, obviously, you don't have to go out in the field and break your back with the plow and the oxen and then all the harvesting. But the downside is you don't reap the reward from the harvest. You don't get any income from that year's harvest because you're to do no work. So for some, they're loving it and some are, are dreading it. God is kind of saying, if stuff grows, it grows. If it not, not. It's letting the earth, though, church, recover. Recover its nutrients. It, it, it's, we understand this concept today. We, we still practice this today where farmers rotate their fields. Now, today it's much easier for us because we have fertilizers, we have chemicals, we have all these things. But what God was really after is it allows the congregation to go out and have free food all year long. Whatever is growing is free to anyone at any time, any field to the poor. You're free to roam. You're free to gather. 
It really is a great welfare system if you think about it. One time a year, the wealthy and the poor on equal footing, they're the same. And oftentimes, you may have run across people who will try to put you down for not holding the Sabbath. Have you ever met it, ran into somebody? Or they'll talk about your church and how your church doesn't keep the Sabbath? Well, when I run into people like that, this is how you handle it. You say, oh, so you keep the Sabbath? Oh, yes, I do. Well, well, do you keep the yearly Sabbath? And it's usually about that time they give you that look like they have no idea about this passage. And you just say, oh, so you keep the yearly Sabbath. You don't work for a whole year. You are awesome. You're amazing. I mean, you are Mr. Spiritual. But you'll never find a person who does that. They, they, most of the time they don't know this passage. And, but, but look, that was the life of faith that they were supposed to live under the sabbatical law. That would still apply to anyone who's claiming to keep the Sabbath law. Whenever something grew in a field, it was free pickings for anybody. No matter what your status was in the community, you were a traveler, whatever, it was free to you. You got your provision the same as everybody else in the community. Everyone was the same. So the Sabbath year is verses 1 through 7. Now count seven sets of those Sabbath years. Seven sets. And we have 49 years. And this is where we're going to start in verse 8. You are also to count, count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years so that you have time. You have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of the jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale, moreover, to a friend or buy from a friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of the years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is the number of the crops he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am the Lord your God. Now let's stop right there for a second. Right here, this is an add-on. In addition to the Sabbath year, where the land was to have a rest, now every 49 years, at the beginning of the 50th year, this special event called the Jubilee is to take place. And all the slaves are freed. And all the debts are canceled. And the land that may have been sold, or at least it goes back to original owner. Did you catch all that? This is intense. This is something that some people were definitely anticipating and others were dreading. It just depends how close to the year of Jubilee you really were. And then it makes some rules here, some mention of some rules about buying and selling the land. So 
This is what you need to know about when you want to figure out what's really going on here. In order to really understand it, you have to know a few things. Number one, this was God's land. The land belonged to the Lord. In verse 23 of this chapter, it says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. He says, you're like aliens and sojourners, but you're with me. But secondly, you need to remember that God had divided up the land, the promised land, in very specific ways. Early on, in Joshua 13 through 21, you, you can read about this, but God gives the land to the people. He says, I want you to take the promised land. I want you to go there, take Canaan, and possess it. And God divides up the land in a very specific way. To this tribe, you get this. And to that tribe, you're going to get this. Moses gave some of the tribes land on this side of the river. And, and, and Joshua gave other tribes land on this side of the river. So when it says, you shall return to your own property and people in Leviticus 25, that's what he's talking about. You go to your tribe, the land during the time of the original division. That land you can never lose. That land is an everlasting inheritance, but we know life happens. It isn't always that easy. Sometimes poverty sets in, a circumstance happens, someone dies, and it's not that easy to maintain your land, and some of the people would have to sell their land to another tribe. Maybe they were doing better at the time, and, and, and they offered to buy it from you to help you out. Maybe there was famine on this side of the river, but not on this side. Whatever it was, life happens, but God had a plan to keep a monopoly from happening where one tribe would form this monopoly that would eventually buy out the other tribe, the weaker tribe. And he made it fair by instilling these rules about buying and selling. And, and it all was based on how we approached, according to the Jubilee approaching, is the best way to say it. The principle was this. The further you are from the next Jubilee, the more valuable the land is, right? Because you have more years to produce crops. More years, if it's 49 years away... That land is valuable, but you only have three years before all the land reverts back to original owners. You get that land for pennies on the dollar. But the thing is, there is no record in the Bible that we can find that the Israelites ever lived up to this command. They kept the Sabbath day, we know that. The Pharisees were all about the Sabbath day, but there's no record of them ever keeping the sabbatical year, let alone the Jubilee, the mega, the mega Sabbath. There's just no record of them. They didn't give back the land on the year of Jubilee. They didn't free the slaves. They, there was no forgiveness of debts, etc. They neglected to set apart the land for the sabbatical year as, as far as we know. There's just not a record of it. In fact, there's more record proving that they never did it than there is that they would have. And I'll show you that in a minute. So God gave them this land, he says, flowing with milk and honey. And yet they refused to give that land flowing with milk and honey rest the Sabbath year. And that went on for 490 years. Now I want to show you something. Let's do a little quick math. So the Sabbath came around once every seven years, right? That's the Sabbath, the Sabbath year where you're resting for a whole year. So if they didn't give the land the Sabbath rest for 490 years, how many Sabbath years was that? You would just simply take 490 years and divide it by seven. And you would come up with 70 years. And you go, well, why is that significant? 
Well, there was a prophet named Jeremiah, which we all know. And Jeremiah gave a prophecy about the children of Israel, and it said that one day they would be taken from the promised land because they failed to live up and, and obey the commands of God. How long did Jeremiah prophesy that the children of Israel would go into captivity? Seventy years. It explained that they would be conquered. We know it was Nebuchadnezzar. And they'd be taken into cap captivity. We know that was Babylon because of their failure to obey God's command. Was God saying, you still owe me those 70 years? So I'm just kicking you out? Off you go? Yes. You go, Tom, you're making this up. I'm not. Second Chronicles, verse 36. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. That's just like intense. God, God knows what he's doing. We don't get to pick and choose which commands of God we want to follow. But sometimes I, sometimes I think we, we can go, well, don't count that one. Or sometimes we go, he forgot about that one. Look, he may not hold you accountable today. Did they get held accountable in the first seven years when they didn't do it? No. The second seven years? No. But our heart should always be broken about the sin every time. Jesus, look, I'm just going to say it. Saying Jesus is Lord is not just some words you say in some one-time ceremony. Instead, it is a posture of repentance that in an instant happens, but takes a lifetime to maintain. In verse 18, he goes on, he says, you shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessings for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth a crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. God says, look, don't worry about this. I'm going to bless the sixth year so that you're going to have an abundance, three years worth. God is making a promise and they're going to have to hang on to the promise of God. We have to hang on to the promises of God. Verse 23, the land moreover shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus for every piece of your property you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Now this section talks about the nearest kinsman and it means the nearest blood relative. It also mentions, uh, or, or it's also known as the kinsman redeemer. So remember that, kinsman redeemer. And the idea is so much more developed in the book of Ruth, where if you know the story, Boaz informs 
the closest relative to Naomi and says, hey, you're a relative of yours. You're the closest relative to this woman, Naomi. She's come back from the land of Moab and she wants to sell a piece of land. I just wanted to let you know. And if you decide you don't want to buy it, I'm next in line. I want to buy it. And indeed, that's what happens. Boaz buys the land from Naomi, but also acquires Ruth as his wife. And he goes, and this is what's so interesting is that Ruth goes on to become the great, or the, yeah, the great grandmother of King David. God totally knows what he's doing. Verse 26, or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for his redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it and so return his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert, then he may return his property. Verse 29, Likewise, if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, then his redemption right remains valid until the full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. But if it is not bought back from him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to the purchaser throughout his generations. It does not revert to the jubilee. So it wasn't as important to redeem a property, a house in this case, in a walled city because it really isn't associated with land. But the next verse allows for the redemption of a house without walls uh, that's out in a field because the house is then considered part of the open field. The house is part of the land. Verse 31, the houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding walls shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert in the Jubilee. Next is, is what affects the Levites. So we're moving along pretty quickly because there's a lot to cover. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption for the houses of the cities which are their possession. What therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed, and a house sale in the city of this possession reverts in the Jubilee. For the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the sons of Israel. But the pasture fields of their cities shall not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. Now remember the Levites, they didn't receive any land when it was all divided out. They were the priests. They got their food from the other tribes during the sacrifices. So their property is more protected by God than all the other people of the tribes. Why? Because they always would need a place to live. Next, we find these dealing with the poor in verse 35. Now in the case of a countryman of yours becomes poor, and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Now, this is amazing that the Israelites were commanded to show mercy to one another, especially to the poor among them. Why? Because they themselves were shown mercy. They themselves were pulled, they were poor, and God pulled them out. 
That, that's the meaning of the last line. I brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. This is God's welfare program. If your brother becomes poor, it says, then you are to sustain him at no charge. If you give him food, you're not to charge him. If you give him money, you're not to charge him interest. He says, don't abuse your brother. It is a big deal to God that we give and we receive mercy. Now, to a true born-again Christian, we should never be without forgiveness in our hearts in our actions, in our lives, because we too have been forgiven. By the same measure that you forgive, you too will be forgiven. But many a person have a long ways to go in this area, to be honest. Christians, non-Christians, the world, I've often heard, well, I can forgive, but I will never forget. You've heard that? Did God say that with us? Well, I can forgive you, but I'll never forget. No, just the opposite. He says, I remember your sins no more. I, I bury your sins in the sea of forgetfulness. They're as far as the east is from the west. Too many people try to pick and choose the commands of God. And you do so to your own peril. In verse 39, he goes on, he says, If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, and they may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. God is saying, look, I set you free in order to be free. So, so don't enslave yourself. Don't enslave what I have freed. He's talking about believers. And in so many ways, he's speaking right to our hearts. The children of the God of Israel relate to the children of of God today as the body of Christ. That's us. Paul says in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. In other words, God has set us free in order that you would be free. So you can't go back to your old lives and live like a slave. It is totally inappropriate for anyone to go back and live a slave to sin to where you were enslaved in Egypt. And Egypt is a form of sin, to go back into bondage. It's completely inappropriate. To act like it never happened, that would mean you were never freed in the first place. Verse 43, You shall not rule over him with severity, but are to revere your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you may gain acquisition, and out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land. They also may become your possession. 
You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. You know, this passage is very rarely, if ever, preached. It is often a problem for many people to understand. How how can God condone slavery? How can God just be cool with the whole slavery issue? Look, we need to know how to deal with this. Yes, God did allow people, the people of Israel, to have male, it says, and female slaves or servants that essentially belonged to them, property. But just because... God has allowed something doesn't mean He approves of it. Polygamy was allowed at a time. Didn't mean God approved of it. Divorce has been allowed, but it's never been approved by God. You don't always know the sovereign plan of God to make those judgments on this. Maybe some of the people around them in the pagan nations, maybe they would have died out if it wasn't for the integration through slavery into the clans of Israel. God also told them never to mistreat your slaves. That's a sign of a wicked heart. That's an evil thing. So don't assume that a period of time explains the whole story. The way I like to explain situations like this is I go back to the example of Noah. Ooh, do I have the Scripture? Let me read it to you. Genesis 6. You can go there if you like. Why don't you turn there? Genesis 6, verse 8. When it comes to these things, this is, this is the verse I, I like to use. Genesis 6, verse 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Stop. Look up here. It says, Noah was righteous and blameless in his time. That is the only age that counts in assessing the morality of people in their own time. In his time. Look, we are to judge people in the standards of their age, not in the standards of our age. When we judge people who lived before us, we judge their moral standards by our moral time, we mess it all up, and here's why. When we do that, we end up concluding that virtually everyone who lived before us was never a good person. That's actually what's being taught right now. It's being taught throughout our country. It's what the world thinks about the Old Testament and much of the New Testament. God is mean. The Old Testament people are all bad. In America, for example, I do believe students are being taught or shown. First of all, they're being shown this part of the truth, that many of the founding fathers own slaves, that America itself owns slaves, Here's the problem. Therefore, they're told that these are bad men and this is a bad country. 
But what everyone needs to understand, at the time of America's founding, virtually every society in the world had slaves, including non-Western, Asian, African, Muslim societies. They all practiced slavery. And most of the time in greater numbers than America ever did. But in America, and the Western Bible Judeo-Christian-based civilization that we live in, they abolished slavery before any other civilization did. That's how George Washington and Thomas Jefferson should be judged. By the way, Noah was judged in his time. They should also be judged by the freedom-loving and the freedom-spreading society they ultimately created. In verse 47, he says, Now, if the means of a stranger or a sojourner with you become sufficient, that means rich, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of the stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he's been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him. Or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. This is interesting right here because it's saying that even foreigners who came into the land of Israel, who came to do business perhaps, and if they became wealthy and they took on Jewish servants, they too had to abide by the rules of redemption. Those slaves would be freed. Those servants would be freed. Verse 50, he then with his purchaser shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of the Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. It is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him. If there are still many years, he shall refund part of the purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And if few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he shall so calculate with him in proportion to his years, he is to refund the amount of his redemption. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. Even if he is not redeemed by these means, he shall still go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his sons with him. For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we finish this chapter, we see a, a lot of instruction related to the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer was somebody who was a blood relative, a kinsman, but there were certain requirements that the kinsman had to meet in order for there to be any redeeming. All of the requirements for the kinsman redeemer are all pointers to Christ. We say it every week. Everything points to Jesus. And I'll close with this slide that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Now remember, there were basically four requirements for someone to be a kinsman redeemer. Jesus fulfills them all. Well, number one, they, they had to be a blood relative. They had to be of the same family. People ask, well, why did God have to become a man in order to redeem us? Well, first of all, God can't die. He's God. So in order for Jesus to redeem us, He had to be one of us. 
And in this process of Him coming here and dying on a cross, God adopted us to be sons into the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, of the same family. Through Him we cry, Father Abba, connected by the blood. Number two, you had to be free. Jesus was the only one that is free. He's the only one that was qualified. We are all completely disqualified. If you said, can you save me? I'm completely disqualified to save you. You're completely disqualified to save the person next to you or a family member or me because we are all stained by sin. Only Jesus is the only one who's free. Number three, you had to have the means of redemption. In other words, you had to have the ability to make it happen. You, 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 you couldn't just make it up. Peter spoke about this. He said, we've been redeemed not with gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And number four, the person had to perform the redemption willingly. We all know that Jesus, He came willingly. I, I like to think of this, this conversation that happened in heaven. Where God is looking around and you got the Holy Spirit, you got Jesus and you got the angels. And, and God says, my people are dying. I, I need to do something, about, I need to send someone down there. And Jesus said, Lord, I'll go. He said, no, but you don't understand. They're not going to accept you. And Jesus says, yeah, I, I know, but I want to go anyway. No, but you don't understand. Not only are they not going to accept you, they're going to hate you and kill you and crucify you. Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I know. But I'm going to go anyway because you're going to be with me. And God says, son, you don't understand. I'm not going to be with you. And on the cross, when Jesus took on the sins of the world, what does he say? Father, why have you forsaken me? The first time he'd ever been separated. That's what the Father was telling him. And Jesus says, I know, I'll, I'm going to go anyway. Jesus came to perform redemption willingly. He was willing to pay the price. Amen? Let's end it there and let's pray.